All right, I don't know if there's some water in that fridge back there, but uh, if someone, Hannah or Kristen's going back there, that would be great. Singing those songs uh, with you this morning, I, I uh, feel kind of winded. <laughs> Took the breath out of me. Man, I'm excited, uh, so grateful to have this warm place to gather, and I'm sure that you are grateful uh, today for your, the warmth of your homes, and it's all a blessing that God has provided for us. And so uh, this morning, boy, my heart is just, makes me sing, makes me sing because I'm not cold. I have not used the, uh, the term frozen chosen uh, amidst uh, this amount of cold. Uh, I, I can't remember a Sunday where it's been negative one on my dashboard as I'm driving to church, but today is such a day. Um, so we're back in Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. Thank you, Josh, for reading that uh, for us. I'm going to start my timer here, which I have not done, but I'm back to that. This, this passage here um, comes right after Josh preached two weeks ago, and I, if you can't remember, that was a great sermon. You should go back and listen to it. Uh, he gave some great uh, examples, examples of the home and, and of, of sonship, and then also of the slave market, and I just thought that those were really really, really great. Um, and so go back and, and listen to that. But Paul is making it clear in, in what, what Josh preached about sonship with the father last, last time that there are only two ways of living. You can live as a son or you can live as a slave. The son is no different from the slave until the time the father sets for his inheritance. And Paul explains that in the fullness of time, God did two things. He, one, sent his son into the world. And two, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, which cry, Abba, Father. Paul is teaching the Galatians how they were made to be sons. Now, this week, Paul is going to do two things. I'm a two-point Baptist preacher today, not a three-point Baptist preacher, so not quite up to snuff, but... Two points here. Uh, One, Paul is going to demonstrate the blessing of knowing God and being known by Him. Okay? In fact, this could be just the the central theme of this passage as we look at it. Just knowing God and being known by Him. The second thing, Paul is going to use persuasive language again. He's going to use an argument with the Galatians, and this is an argument that started way back in the beginning when he said, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? After starting with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That argument is going to come, and now he's going to say, how does one who's been made a son choose to be a slave again? How does that happen? And I believe that, that, that for Paul, it is bewildering. It's like, I don't, I don't understand this. I don't get this. Help me out, Galatians. How does this happen? That someone who, is, who has received sonship chooses to go back and be a slave. So we're going to look at those two different things, starting first with the, the demonst- Paul demonstrating the blessing of knowing and being known by him. We see this in verse 8. He begins with, Formerly, when you did not know God, You were enslaved by those that by nature were not gods. So he begins by setting out the problem. Formerly, back, way back when, when you did not know God. Do you remember that time? You were slaves then. 
Not knowing God means that you are a slave. You're a slave to idolatry, the worship of gods that by nature are not gods. They are stealing from God the glory that only He deserves. And you worship them. You were slaves to them. You were slaves to paganism, slaves to to a mythology of gods and goddesses created by man apart from the true and living God. This is the state of all humanity. This is the state of us. Prior to regeneration by the Holy Spirit, prior to becoming sons of God, prior to receiving the grace of God that gives us life and opens our eyes. This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2:12 as he speaks to the Ephesians. He says, "Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel." and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It reminds me of a, of a hymn that I wanted to sing this morning. I replaced it with, And Can It Be? The song Amazing Grace that says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And to sing that amazing grace and to be captured and to be overwhelmed with the the thought of God's grace, that it is amazing, that for all of us, that that God found us, we didn't find Him, that He chose us, that He revealed Himself to us when we had no concept of who He was, when we were lost in our sins, hopeless. Paul continues in verse 9, but now, huge, but now, but now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how can you turn back? Here's the question. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to to be once more? So, but now, but now you know God. What? Correction, correction you are known by God, right? More important than than you know God. You are known by God. You are brought into a knowledge of God. Now, there's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing them, right? Like, I could say, I know, uh, let's see, somebody famous. Give me somebody famous. John Travolta. I could say, I could say, I know John. I know about John Travolta, and you would go, well, yeah, I know about John Travolta too. That's that's nothing special. But if I were to say, no, I know John Travolta. He's my uncle. You'd be like, ooh, okay, well, tell me more. You know that you have a connection to him. There's something personal about that knowledge. And that's the kind of knowledge that that Paul is speaking about. But now you have come to know God, not just about Him. You've come to know God, or rather be known by Him. See, that's that's the follow-up question. Oh, so you know John Travolta? Does he know you? (laughs) Because if he doesn't know you, it's like, yeah, you met him maybe once, but he doesn't have a clue about who you are. Now, what about God? Does God know you? Because that matters. That matters, and it makes a big difference on how you know him if he's aware of you. Now, the Old Testament uh, gave us this promise 
of a new, a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, with God's laws written upon it. And it added something else there. If we look at Jeremiah 31, 34, and also in the New Testament, Hebrews 8, 11, it says, it says, along with those promises of a new heart and God's laws written on it, he says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So the the knowledge that they are given there grants them forgiveness of iniquity, and God remembers their sin no more. Man, to know God like that, that grants us forgiveness. Now, this does not mean that people do not need teaching after becoming believers. The letter to the Galatians is proof about that, okay? Right? So we, we do need people to teach us, but it does certainly mean that they will not need to be instructed to know the Lord. Without exception from the greatest to the least, this promise is that all under the new covenant are regenerate, that they are spiritually alive. This new covenant life enables us to know God in a way that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins will never know. This is the result of God knowing us, of choosing us. If we look in 1 John, uh, the, the letter to, the, to those uh, that John writes to the, those who are dispersed, he says, in contrast to those who have left the church and are teaching an anti-gospel, he says, he shows that there's a distinction between those who only know about God and those who God has made sons, who are known by God as his sons. They have a knowledge. It's an intimate and direct knowledge of God. And this is what he says. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth, but the anointing that you received, bumping down to 27, from the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him." Now, like I said, this letter that John is writing to some churches is, is, is specifically writing to them about some people who are among them who were teaching them an anti-gospel, teaching, showing them that there's something besides Christ that, or in addition to Christ. And Paul was saying, don't listen to them. And in fact, they depart from the church. And he says they depart because they weren't of us. They, they were There's a distinction. They knew about God, but they did not know God. Now, this is a theme in the Scriptures. Now, listen to a sample of verses that that talk about knowing God. First, starting in John 17, 25 and 26, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made known to them, I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. 
Listen, he, he, he is making the Father known to, to the world who does not know him in order that the love that, that God has for Christ, that we might know that love. He is sent to reveal the Father's love to us. And that's something that you can't, you can't be taught, not by people in the world. But Christ has come to do that. Listen to what uh, Zechariah prophesies about his son John, that he would go before the Messiah. And in Luke 177, he says, he will go before the Messiah to give to his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. John was sent to announce the one who would make the Father known, and through the Father and the Father's love, forgiveness. This is the content of what we are to hear. Right? This is how we get to know, and we need to hear it. Romans 10, 14, how then will they call upon him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then Ephesians talks about Christ in Ephesians 2, 17, and he says that he, Christ, came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who are near. This, this is the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming to declare an effectual call to humanity. Actually, it's an effective, it is effectual to the elect, but it goes out to all humanity. If we look in the 1689 uh, Confession, uh, number 10, there's a whole section on effectual calling. And this is why we uh, are so excited about using this as our statement of faith, because it is so robust. It is so uh, theologically accurate, and it's not just a one-liner. Listen to what it says about effectual calling. In God's appointed and acceptable time, He is pleased to call effectually by His Word and Spirit those He has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Christ Jesus. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God and takes away their heart of stone. He gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by His almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Christ Jesus. He does this all in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by His grace. Where is that? Ah, So the call, this effectual call, what it means to be effectual is that it has the power to produce what its intended result is, okay? So it has the power to draw, it has the power to convict, it has the power to produce repentance, it has the power to produce the faith that justifies. That's the call that goes out. Uh, Sproul says it is irresistible. Now, who are his people that he is calling? John 6, 45 says it is written in the prophets that they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. So who are his people? The answer is those who come to Christ. In John 17, 3, very famous verse, one that you're probably familiar with. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, 
Not the pagan gods, but the true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Jesus says the knowledge, this knowledge is eternal life. To know God through Jesus, through his life, his ministry, his words, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that is the key to eternal life. In fact, it is the key to knowing all spiritual things. In the verse before when it says you know all things, I think that's what it's speaking about. That knowing Christ opens this, this, this understanding that we can't know any other way. And through that, through that, we can know spiritual things. Now listen, I'm going to go to one other passage that I, this is in my musings. This is uh, just curious, so just go with me here. If we go to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, interesting passage here. It's the end of the love passage, you know, that's, that's preached about at all the weddings, you know. Love is kind, love is all this stuff, right? And then he gets to this. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And that's 1 Corinthians, again, 13, 8 through 12. Now, does this right here have to do with Paul's metaphor of children under a pedagogue? Just look at it. Just look at it. So when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. Okay? So my question is, is what does it mean by the perfect when the perfect has come? And that's been a question for lots of theologians. I remember listening to John Piper say that this, this, is, this is not the word of God, that this is actually the second coming when Christ comes. And then because he says, yeah, I have the word of God and I don't know it completely, I'm still kind of trying to figure out. I can't say that I know everything, that I see God face to face. But here's in my musing is I, 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 prophecies in tongues, wait, wait, the perfect, is it referring to the new covenant? That's, that's my question. Could it be that, that he's talking about this new covenant that God has made with us, that that is the perfect thing that has come? That the incomplete old covenant has passed away and now the new covenant has come. And now because of that, prophecies and tongues are no longer as needed. We no longer need worldly teachers or prophecies or tongues or words of knowledge because the sons of God are instructed by the Spirit and His Word. It, go back to the passage that we're in. He says, but now you have come to know God or rather be known by God. It's just something that I'm thinking about a different way. I can't be really dogmatic on that, but I, it kind of got me excited this week thinking and looking at that passage in a slightly different way. Again, this whole section is Paul demonstrating the blessing of knowing God and being known by Him. It's the very heart of the gospel message. And it asks us the question, do you know God? Or better yet, does He know you? The second point in my two-point sermon here is this persuasive argument that, that began uh, with 
foolish Galatians. And now he's saying, how does a son choose to be a slave again? The guilt of the Galatians was that their eyes were opened and that they've somehow turned back again to the weak and worthless basic understanding of the world. They wanted to be slaves again after being set free. This reminds me of, of the children of Israel once they left Egypt, right? And they go, oh no, man, the food is terrible out here. Man, we had ice cream in Egypt. Let's go back. It's like, that's so dumb. They didn't, didn't say ice cream. That's kind of my paraphrase there. But why would they want to go back to be slaves in Egypt again? And yet that's exactly what they said. And here the Galatians are doing the same thing. How foolish is this? Now, Paul addresses elementary principles, okay? You observe days and months and seasons and years. The Greek word here is stoikion. It has two uses, one a general use and one a little bit more malevolent. The Greek word can be translated, like I said, in two different ways. In a general term, meaning rudimentary teachings of the world or basic, your basic understanding of the world, Right? And it can be used that way, or it can be used as elemental spirits of the world, which has a little bit of a darker hint to it. Uh, previously, it was used in the context of the law as our guardian in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, the law being a rudimentary teaching. It was basic, right? But here in this context, we're in the context of them serving other gods, Okay. Let me read uh, from John Stott. He has an interesting idea about this. And, and several commentators seem to tend towards this kind of more malevolent kind of influence here. John Stott says, What has the devil then done in relation to the law? Meaning, the law is a good thing. It's a perfect thing. But it seems like he's twisted it. He's twisted it on humanity. And the answer he gives is that he has exploited God's good law in order to tyrannize men in ways that God never intended. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive, men's, drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage there is no escape. The Galatians were turning away from Christ and turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary spirits of the world. And somehow they wished to be enslaved again. This ending comment is very pointed that Paul makes. He says that they are observing days and months and seasons and years, meaning their religion is about externals. It's about rules. It's about regulations. It's about what everybody sees me doing on the outside. Uh, Eric Alexander, he's a Scottish preacher, kind of moved me into this area. He called it externalism. Now, it's not the externalism that comes from philosophy, but he would define it as, as uh, the excessive regard to outward appearances, the art of judging oneself or others based upon the outside. They were being deceived into making the law and tradition a system of salvation. You have to keep these days, okay? Now, is this referring to 
their pagan days and months and seasons? Or is this referring to Jewish days, Sabbaths, feasts, new moons, that kind of thing? Either way, it doesn't matter, right? You must keep these days. So if you were a pagan farmer, you followed superstitious practices to please the gods and bring rain and bountiful harvest. Or maybe you followed superstitious wives' tales about how the pagan gods could make one pregnant or bring health. Or they would apply that to Jewish tradition built on the law, and they would say if the law could save us, we have to do all these things. But how do you know if you've done enough? Right? How do you know that you won't fail in some way that is unforgivable? The law is not a ladder to get us to heaven. It's more like a teacher to instruct us about our sin and our hopeless situation. Heaven is out of grasp without Christ. We have to understand that. Yes, the law is a means of grace. We have read Psalm 119 together as we are reading the Bible together. Remember that? Your law is a, is, is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto, it's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? He says, oh, how I love your law, how I love your commands and your precepts and your ordinances. And he goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on about that, doesn't he? And it does matter in how we live, but it's, it's getting to the motivation of our hearts where we start, and what comes out of our lives. It was a means of grace. This was the way that God gave to his people to know how to walk with him, but it was also to point them to Christ. So now that Christ has come, to follow it is to disregard this great blessing that we have in Christ. But now that Christ has come bringing a knowledge of God, making us sons, why would we believe the lies telling us that salvation is dependent on our ability to perfectly follow the law? Paul talks about these spirits in Colossians 2.20 through 23. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It is so tempting, and maybe this is where it's not so malevolent, but it's just rudimentary basic teachings. We understand this that we have to please the gods, that we have to serve the gods, that they demand something from us. Every religion teaches this, except for one. It's the one who has Christ paying for it all. His righteousness, not your own, not your own. It's not about you, it's about him, that he would receive all the glory. See, see, if, if we make it about us doing certain things, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be Try to please him. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, our lives shouldn't reflect uh, our gratitude to him. But if we're somehow trying to earn that, we're saying that, you know what, Christ, your sacrifice isn't enough, and I have to help you with that. Somehow it steals a little bit of his glory away, and he will not have that. 
It is self-made religion. It is weak. It is worthless because it won't save. Christ Jesus alone brings freedom. He alone is mighty to save. He is more precious than all the riches of the earth. He is uniquely superior to anything that this world can imagine. Now, some use this passage to suggest that Paul is condemning the celebration of Sabbaths, right? That he's making it about Jewish things, because in the past it has been. It's been about circumcision, right? So why isn't this about keeping the Sabbath? Well, um, like I said, it doesn't really matter. Either way, you're making it legalism and somehow uh, part of your salvation. Um, but it's, it's unique that in this phrase, days, months, seasons, and years, it does not contain any of the Greek words used in the New Testament for the Sabbath, Sabbaton, or new moon celebrations, which is noumena, or feast days, which is orote. Okay? So the point is, is they are no longer... these. Galatians are no longer enjoying the freedom of sons because they've chosen the cold ritual and duties of slaves. Instead of seeing God as a father, they're choosing rather to see him as a judge. Because of this, Paul says, I fear for you, that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. If Paul had never come to them, they would have been in the same slavery that they are now choosing. So he says, all that blood. Remember when I read to you Acts 14, that he was stoned outside the city. He went back again. All that pain, was it for nothing? Was it in vain? So again, I have two points. So I have two application points as well. The first goes back to knowing God and asking us the question, do we know God? Is that merely informational knowledge or would you say that you have a direct personal connection, a relationship with God? Paul tells us how we come to understand our need for a Savior and how to know God. It's by grace. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think Sinclair Ferguson, another Scottish preacher, very influential in my life. I, I think maybe it's their accent or something. Uh, it says... He says the chief role of the Holy Spirit today is to reveal the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he is actively in the business of opening eyes and opening hearts to understand who Jesus is. Jesus says this in John 16, 12 through 15. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. It is the Spirit who communicates, who opens our eyes, who reveals, who gives us this knowledge of the Father's love. And this has changed how I look at evangelism. I think it should change the way that we all look at evangelism. Used to be, in my younger days, I, I went to a lot of evangelism trainings, a lot of apologetics class. I tried to memorize the arguments because I thought in them I could change people's hearts. 
I could make them under, somehow understand and choose God. Now, I'm not saying that giving an answer for the hope that we have that challenges the lies of the enemy is not important because it is, right? And God, in that moment, as you're having that discussion, the light bulb can come on. But it's not because of your argument. <laughs> I mean, he used a donkey with Balaam. If we take that for granted, if we overlook the work of the Spirit during our gospel presentation, it puffs us up. And even scarier, somehow we take the credit. And I think we are incredibly foolish when we do that. So when I know that someone needs to, to hear the gospel, man, I'm on my knees praying for them. It reminds me of my friend Roman in Washington. Roman said that before he became a Christian, he said, I had this curiosity about spiritual things. And he said, I don't know where it came from, but I just wanted to know God. He said, I was searching for someone to tell me about God. And he said, in my workplace and the people around me, my family, he said, I couldn't find anyone who would tell me about God. So one day he, he thought, well, you know what? There's a church and I should just go there. And then he said, that's where I found out about God. But think about that. It challenges me to think about someone who is searching for God. Like the, the Ethiopian with Philip, right? I mean, who's going to explain this to me? And that's our blessing as believers, as ambassadors, that we get to go and communicate the good news, the terms of surrender from our Savior that they must accept in order to have new life because he has conquered all. But they have no idea. They have no idea. The second uh, application point would be a word about externalism. The Galatians appear to be focused on external validation that came from following days and seasons and years. I don't know if they thought that this made them more spiritual or somehow it was, it was, it was driving uh, their, their, their spirituality, thinking that somehow they could earn or gain favor through these practices. So for us, I think in our culture, that's being seen as a good person, right? Uh, oftentimes when I ask people, how do you know that you are saved? They will say, well, I'm a good guy. I haven't killed anybody. Why, why does everybody say that? I think that's a basic elementary, rudimentary teaching of the world, right? If you're a good person, you get in. Or maybe going to church or giving your offering or not sinning too bad. Keeping your needs to yourself and not asking for prayer. Not filling out that card because I'm fine. Not seeking guidance or spiritual director, direction from your pastor or elders because you don't want to appear stupid about spiritual stuff. Keeping your stuff, keeping your struggles to yourself, this is pride rather than humility. It is self-made religion. Perhaps you're choosing bitterness rather than reconciliation because it just looks better. You're attributing wealth or beauty with spirituality. Well, they, that guy must be really spiritual because he's doing so well and God surely is blessing him. He must be doing something right. He must be reading his Bible a lot. I'm not saying that reading your Bible's not good, but even myself this week as I was trying to keep up with the plan, 
you know, I felt like I'm, I wasn't savoring the word. I was just trying to get through it. And I, I was convicted, right? Externalism. Why am I doing this? Well, because I said I was going to do it. And I'm going to look bad if somebody sees on the little thing that I haven't checked my little thing for the day. How about wanting to be popular within the church? Letting our egos go wild. The thought of, of, of us as being wanting to be valuable in the church or being smart in the church. Not being inclusive of new people or outsiders. Being exclusive, rather, and territorial about our friends. They're my people. It's like living your life as, as, as your so, social media profile, right? Only letting others see what you want them to see so that they envy you, so that they want to be you, so that you will be an influencer. This is what it means to be a false god, to worship yourself and to call others to your altar. This gets very dark very quickly. So let me share with you something more glorious than that. Something that I think that the, Paul would want the Galatians to know. Psalm 139, David says, and this is what I think that, that God wants from us. Rather than that, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light around me become night. Even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret intricate intricacy woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet none of them. How precious are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I were to count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that, the, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, oh men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? 
And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We are known by God to know Him. What a blessing that we experience in the new covenant because of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. And Lord, that You have opened our eyes, that you have given us uh, sight in our blindness, in our sin, and in our trespasses, Lord, when we could not know you. Though we would search for you, Lord, we could not find you. We needed you to awaken our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And you provided Christ in the fullness of time to reveal the Father's love to us. We are so grateful for that. Father, if there's anyone in here who does not know you, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would lead them to a knowledge of yourself, that you would lead them to a knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would accomplish that by your grace, by your mercy. We need you, God. Lord, lead us in a fuller, and deeper knowledge of you. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.